0: No. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Aida Ramoswada. I'm a 4th year graduate
1: student in the Department of Sociology, and I have the honor of uh, introducing our speaker tonight, um, Dr. Robert Woodbury. So Dr. Woodbury um, is an associate, uh, assistant professor in the Department of Sociology. He got his B.A. in um, International Politics from Wheaton College, went on to get a Master's in Cross-Cultural Studies from Fuller Theological Seminary another Master's in Sociology from the University of Notre Dame, and then finally finished off with his Ph.D. in Sociology uh, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, Dr. LaGrade's <coughs> research looks at the long-term impact of missionaries and the different colonial governments on education, economic development and democracy, in post-colonial societies. Other research interests include the spread of religious liberty, the international diffusion of social movements religious influences on political institutions and the economy, religious attitudes of elites, religious tolerance, conservative Protestants, and finally, measuring religious groups through surveys. Dr. Woodbury has actually published in several um, prestigious sociological journals, including um, American Sociological Review, um, Social Forces, another one. He actually has a forthcoming article entitled The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. It's coming out in one of the top political science journals um, in May, I believe, uh, called the American Political Science Review. I think it's the very top one. Um, Dr. LeBrain's had an interesting childhood. He grew up in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Saudi Arabia. He has worked in China and Japan. He traveled to over 50 countries. Um, he's an avid fan of world food and culture, of course. <laughs> also, um, this summer, we'll be seeing Bob as he moves to Singapore and starts his new career as an associate professor at um, the National University of Singapore in the political science department. And for a personal note, Dr. Lowberry has been one of the most influential people <coughs> in my graduate student journey so far. Um, he's a kind and really smart person, which is a combination sometimes I think it's to find in grad school. <laughs> um, he's also a really good teacher. Humorous, he's got numerous teaching awards and truly a light for Christ in the department. Mm-hmm. So please join me in welcoming Dr. <laughs> <coughs> <Okay>. <coughs>
0: um,
2: I'm gonna talk to you a bit today about the social impact of Christianity. Um, and Christianity and Judaism have shaped a lot of what we consider to be Western culture and a lot broadly of what we consider to be modernity. Now, I don't think there's just one modernity that we could have. I think it's more of a contingent process. But what we think of a Native American modernity is heavily influenced by Christianity, and particularly Protestantism. Um, it's just become where people think it's normal and think it just developed naturally, and it didn't. It came out of particular religious ideas. Um, first, I was going to talk just very, very briefly, just mention some other areas where Christianity and Judaism have shaped... Um, our concepts of the world, um, and then I'll go more specifically into my own research, um, looking at uh, Protestants and pr- Protestantism, Protestant <laughs> missionaries, and the spread of mass education, mass printing newspapers, uh, nonviolent social movement organizations, colonial reform movements, and political democracy. Um, <coughs> so Christianity has shaped our world in ways that are both mundane and profound. Um, it shaped our concept of time moving from a cyclical concept to a linear concept. Um, we date things from the birth of Christ, even though it's maybe probably not exact date. But having a seven-day week, having a weekend, all those things are shaped by Judaism and Christianity. And we've just sort of exhorted them as normal, and they're spread around the world. <coughs> it's also had an important influence on the rise of cumulative science and technology. Um, now, it's more, there's more uh, influences than just Christianity and Judaism, but um, certainly monastic community, communities um, were quite unique in combining people who were highly educated and who had to work with their hands um, and developed a lot of technological innovations and also the concept of an orderly, knowable universe because of God's creation, um, which became important in terms of um, it's not an illusion, there's not capricious God, it's something logical that we can figure out um, and is important in the process of development of, of cumulative science. <laughs> um, the rise of international law, rules binding, uh, state between states as equal sub and that are not subject to each other um, although we had colonialism as well. Um, the idea of rights um, issues related to the sanctity of life um, uh, lots of things related to sort of women's rights and the nuclear family um, now there's been limitations with Christianity on that as well um, but certainly the idea of monogamy um, no divorce inheritance only through uh, legitimate heirs made wives important in ways that they were not in other cultures. The idea of Bible, where people had women were supposed to be able to read the Bible um, for themselves, as well as men, became important in the rise of female education. And certainly the issues that missionaries went to the mat on around the world were almost exclusively issues related to slavery or women's um, rights. Um, the ones that they were willing to lose converts over were those two issues. Um, so in India, fighting sati, where the wife would had, to, had to burn herself alive on the funeral pyre of her husband, um, trying to raise the age of consummation of marriage to age 12, um, uh, against buying and selling daughters, um, <coughs> foot binding, various things like that, uh, clitorectomy, various issues like that were the ones that they were willing to lose comfort. In. Um, <coughs> my own work uh, looks at uh, democracy slide. Um, I got money through, I have a project called um, Project on Religion and Economic Change, and I look particularly at, uh, if you can go the one, um, uh, the, the roots of long-term economic development and long-term political change in countries around the world. Um, and scholars have increasingly become to realize that a lot of the roots of differences between countries go back centuries. Um, and they're not easily changed. Um, so you see patterns that are pretty consistent among certain types of countries. So like East Asia, how they have responded to modernity is different from where lots of other societies have, where dominant Muslim societies, etc. You see these patterns of how people respond that, have, that are really hard to change. You can't just make a country into Japan. Okay? It's not like you can tweak something and that will happen. Um, and a lot of things seem to be related to particular types of colonization and also per, particular types of religion. Um, so I look at that more, more in detail. Um, now, the difficulty, if you want to say that a religion has a particular effect, it's very hard to measure that. And people always say, well, really, maybe it's something else that's associated with or correlated with religion. Maybe it's not really religion, it's something that influenced where that religion went, for example. Um, so I have spent a lot of work dealing with that issue, both trying to look at things historically and statistically, to try and get at how can we parse out the effect of religion. Um, so one way I've done it is through um, I start off with making arguments in Europe, where you get the or, and North America where you get the rise of these various patterns, and then I look at settler colonies, and then I look at um, uh, the, the the mission uh, the missionary uh, places where missionaries went, um, and I try and uh, argued that where Protestant and Catholic missionaries went was not caused by the same type of thing that shaped where Protestants <coughs> and Catholics went in Europe, for example. Okay, And so you can sort of control sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of, for the factors that shaped where religion went. Um, uh, and so I collected all these data on Protestant and Catholic missions and all the things they do in terms of education, printing, medical work, etc., and then it's all plotted out on maps. So I know the longitude and latitude of virtually every Protestant mission station and institution from eighteen thirteen through nineteen sixty eight. Um and then I have data on virtually all Protest I mean Catholic uh religious work around the world from eighteen eighty two through the present. Um next slide. Wait,
3: while you're on that last one. Yes. That's impressive. Especially <laughs> <laughs> when you think of all of these missionaries, probably from Europe uh, maybe some from America, but yeah. who went to China uh-huh. and who went to India. Yeah. That's astounding.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's cool about it, too, is not only can I adjust it to current countries, but I can adjust, look at subnational national differences. Um, so you can look at artificial borders, for example, this is getting a little ahead of myself, but like in Nigeria, missionaries were prevented from going to the northern part of Nigeria because it was Muslim, and they were prevented from, you know, certain other places in Kenya because there was Muslims, etc. And so there's these artificial lines that no longer exist, that missionaries were not allowed to cross. And you can see drastic differences on either side of that line in education, infant mortality, various things like that. Okay? Because I can look at the local level. You can also link these up to sort of light emission. So like you can look at the mission stations and you can look at current light emission relative to the population, which is like a level of economic development. And because I know the exact longitude and latitude through time, you can show exactly their correlation with particular types of economic development. So it's pretty cool. But that's getting ahead. I, I just
3: want to toss in one other thought. I, I've been to both India and China. Have interest in both, in particular right. China. I had what what this just shouts out to me. Something I hadn't thought about before is that uh, missionaries have had to have had an impact on both China.
2: Oh China. yeah, yeah, very much, very, oh. very much. So. In Japan, look at Japan. Yeah. Oh yeah, in Japan. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean they, they had pro- profound effects on those societies. They really did. Uh, we can get into historically how. Even if people don't convert, they profoundly <coughs> shape them. Um, Next slide. Catholics is a little bit harder because they give this data according to uh, this uh, ecclesiastical jurisdictions. They change shape over time, so I had to reconstruct the history of all of them, so you can reconstruct the shape. Next slide. <laughs> um, so this is like the history of them. Okay. Next slide. Uh, then you link them up to modern data of of, of ecclesi- um, provinces and municipalities and populated places. So this is an ecclesiastical jurisdiction and we linked up with that. Next slide. Um, and then you link it up with all kinds of data related to participation, soil quality, access from the coast, uh, rainfall, altitude, and then you can link it up to local-level um, poverty, other things like that. So all you can control for all these different factors climactic, um, what governments have done, etc.—and then look at positive and negative emissions and how that's related to outcomes like poverty, etc., at, at the micro level. Okay, next slide. Um, so I have this argument about the role of conversionary Protestantism and modernity. Um, and I argue that it's not just Protestantism and it's not just sort of a secularized version of Protestantism. It's conversionary Protestantism that matters because that's what forces people to copy. Okay? So there's certain things that, that Protestants wanted for religious reasons. When they tried to use those things to convert people, it forced other people to copy those innovations and you get a multiplier effect. Um, and so I argue that Protestants were crucial to the spread of mass education, mass printing, newspapers, nonviolent social media organizations, and the tactics and organizational forms that are used for those um, for most of the major colonial reform movements. Um, and then that dispersed power from a small group of people to a broader group of people <coughs> and shaped long term economic and political problems like the rise of political democracy. Okay, next slide. Um, Missionaries were crucial to the spread of math education. So every society that had a written language had some form of formal education. But it was mostly elite education, and it was mostly done through tutors. Okay? So families, wealthy families hired tutors who trained their children with adult books. Okay? It was very expensive, it was very hard, you couldn't train a lot of people. Protestants wanted everyone to be able to read the Bible, including poor people, including women. You can't have tutors for all of them, so they develop techniques of mass education, like having graded <coughs> classes that are at different levels, having textbooks that are writ- written for children, um, so you're progressing higher and higher and higher. Various techniques for doing math education, where well, two different techniques, um, but often having older students train younger students um, to help with the problem of not having enough teachers, um, having uh, it, each one teach one kind of thing, so like, you teach one person to read, they have to teach two people to read, they have to teach two people to read, etc., and they're trying to do these multiplier effects to get lots of mass education, okay? because they wanted people to be able to read the Bible in their own language. But Protestants also thought that science came out of, 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 of Protestantism, they also thought democracy came out of Protestantism, so they also taught a lot of those things, and certainly well into the 20th century, um, most Protestant missionaries did not see a conflict between science and religion. In the 20th century, with Darwinism in the 1920s, et cetera, you start to get attention on that issue. Uh, it starts a little bit earlier. But um, up to that date, they didn't see it. So they, they taught science as thinking this is preparing people to become Christian. Okay? Next slide. Um, they're important to the thread of uh, medical education. Next slide. Um, they were also the main people who, uh, who trained people in terms of agricultural techniques and introduced new crops all around the world, which had important economic impact. Next slide. Um, <coughs> Also, because uh, Protestants wanted people to ri- read the Bible in their own language, that meant you needed to have mass printing because you had to have texts that were very cheap that ordinary people could own so that everyone could have books. And a lot of people think that printing is just a technology that once you know how to do it, of course you'll want to do it. And once you do it, you know, you want to make money, so of course you're going to print more books and pretty soon you just, through the market and through (laughs) technology, you get more and more printing and pretty soon you get mass printing. Okay? But that's totally false. (coughs) Um, You had printing before Protestantism, but Protestantism transformed that technology into a mass technology and also, through trying to convert people using printed text, forced people to print who did not. So historically, East Asia had printing long before Europe about 800, 900 years before Europe. They had movable font type before Europe. They had movable font metal type before Europe. Um, We might say, well, China had a, you know, they used characters, not alphabets, but both Korea and Japan had phonetic languages, which make um, uh, movable fonts efficient, and they had them before Europe, at least (coughs) Korea did. But it didn't lead to the same consequences. It didn't lead to the same level of mass printing. Manuscripts continued to be the dominant form of communication until the 19th century. Um, it didn't lead to mass education, it didn't lead to cumulative science, it didn't lead to newspapers, it didn't lead to modern nationalism. All these things that happened in Europe caused by printing. Okay? But printing only spread to Mahayana Buddhist societies, only. It did not spread to Theravada Buddhist societies, like Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, which are right next to Vietnam, and have trade with China. It didn't sleep, um, move to Hindu societies, like India. It did move to Muslim societies, In, but all of those societies were repeatedly exposed to printing over hundreds and hundreds of years and never used it to print books. Um, so the Mongols invade Central Asia. They know how to print from the Chinese. They print the Buddhist. The ones who become Buddhists print. The ones who become Muslims only print money and amulets. Okay, people like hate the money, so they stop. They like the amulets, so they do it. Okay, so you're printing texts. Folding up in a piece of paper, you know, folding up in a little thing and tying it around your neck. Okay? But nobody's reading them.
0: <laughs>
2: you see? Same thing. From Europe, Jews flee persecution, come to Central Europe, I mean central, um, to uh, the Ottoman Empire, uh, up into Central Asia. They print, nobody copies them. Eastern Christians print, nobody copies them. Catholic missionaries come, print small numbers of texts, nobody copies them. Foreign trade companies print, nobody copies them. It's not till the 19th century when Protestant missionaries come and tend to start to print tens of thousands of texts that all of a sudden Muslims and Hindus and Theravada Huda go like, <gasps> gotta print, don't want them to become Protestant, and start to print. Okay? And, print and, and, and all the first local people who start to print get their presses from the missionaries. Okay? And they're printing against them normally. Um, okay? It also transformed printing in, in Japan, Korea, and China to becoming mass printing. The fonts that dominate printing in Japan, Korea, and China were created by missionaries through the 19th and the early 20th century. The, the, the local printing uh, companies that dominate printing in the early 20th century are by people who worked with missionaries before, etc. Okay? Um, so it's not about technology. Next. Next. Nonviolent social movements. <coughs> in the late 18th and early 19th century... In England, you get the development of modular forms of protest, where people carry placards, they go on demonstrate marches, they sign petitions, they pressure government officials with things like that. They have pledges, they do all this kinds of stuff like that. Okay? It's this new form of social process that is nonviolent and that is repeated in terms of we use it all the time now. But people haven't always done that. Okay? That's something that develops. Uh, over time, historically, primarily in the late 19th and early—I mean, late 18th and early 19th century—and um, people have argued, oh, it's really because you get the expanding state in England and you get the rising bourgeoisie, blah blah blah. Um, except the problem is, you get the same pattern happening in the United States, including in the Western frontier, at the same time, and you get the same pattern happening in India at the same time. And in all the cases, the people who are doing it are evangelical Protestants and missionaries. Okay? In all those places. Now, if it's really the strength of the state, why the Western frontier? Not much state going on there. <laughs> you know, th- why India? Calcutta, India? Not much state going on there either. If it's the rise of the bourgeoisie, did really Calcutta, India, on the Western frontier, have a bigger bourgeoisie than, say, France or Germany or Italy? Where it happened later, in fact, much later, and why, in all cases, is it these nonconformist Protestants who are the people who initiate these processes? Okay, because they are drawing on religious forms that they use to raise money for religious causes and convert people to their religion, and they're using it for social purposes to try and transform the things that they think are wrong with society: temperance, abolition, prison reform, colonial reform, etc. Okay. And the first generations of reformers and nationalists all around the world come out of Protestant mission schools, even in places where there's very few Protestants. So, Sun Yat sen, first um, nationalist president of China, Christian, Protestant. Chiang Kai shek eventually became Protestant. I mean, Korea, etc. Okay? Um, India. So, um, <coughs> so, I can talk through it in India just, in, just to give you some basic stuff. Um, Missionaries come. They don't like sati, which is burning the wife when the husband died. Um, So they try and get it banned. They do this uh, publicity through their newspaper, friend of India. They're doing all this uh, petition campaign. They're working with a guy named Ramahand Roy, who helped them translate the Bible into Bengali. He prints the first vernacular newspaper. He's the first person to, well, he he sponsors the first person to print. Um, He's trying to, to he, he sort of originally became Baptist, then he became Unitarian, and then he's trying to reform Hinduism, but he doesn't want them to become Protestant because it's not Indian. So um, he's trying to get rid of sati and do all these other colonial forms, um, uh, but not let them become Protestant. Then you get Calcutta Dharma Sabha forming, because they want to keep sati and they don't want them to become Protestant. But all of them are copying these same organizational forms and tactics. So they have... These organizations that have weekly meetings, they have a board of directors, they have um, elections, they have traveling speakers, they have newspapers and newsletters, they're just getting people to sign petitions, etc. All these things in the early 19th century. Okay? And you can show it's this direct link of copying. Okay? Then later on, those spread. Um, they, those, the, the British allow them to exist because they don't like the missionaries, and so as long as they're fighting the missionaries, it's okay. Then they become powerful. And they start to become anti-colonial, and they start pressuring the British colonial government, and then the leadership that from the Indian National Congress Party, from the RSS, etc., come out of these organizations. Okay, so like I can show this in countries all around the world. Next slide. Limited colonial uses. Oops, one. Um, so missionaries were the major advocates of most colonial reforms. Uh, now, most missionaries were not anti-colonial. They were not going out there to fight colonialism. Colonialism often let them be there. They had quite a range of attitudes toward colonialism. However, they get backed into these things. Okay? They're trying to reach indigenous people when white settlers or colonial officials or the military or something else does something that hurts those people. They get mad at the West, which they associate Christianity with. And they resent it, and they don't want to convert Christianity. Okay. Also, missionaries are the ones who are way out in the villages and in the fields and stuff like that. If there's an uprising, there are the people are going to die. Okay? So they have this built-in incentive, part of it humanitarian, but part of it also in terms of doing their message. So you see that when missionaries are not financed by the state and not financed by white settlers, i.e. that they have independence, <laughs> um, and when abuses interfere with their ability to convert people, they get involved in these social movements to fight them. Okay? Um, next slide (coughs) and so you can see they're the main people who advocate the idea of trusteeship that British colonialism needs to be for the betterment of the indigenous people now people pick up that language and don't really do it but missionaries are at least pushing this ideology they also become important in terms of the rise of immediate abolitionism um, in setting up the select committee uh, on aboriginal tribes um, and various Uh, of colonial reform movements. Next slide. Um, I'll walk you through one of them just very, very briefly to show you sort of how the pattern works. Uh, I'm talking about the rise of immediate abolitionism, um, in this case not the rise of the movement to fight slave trade, that's also related, but that's another story. Um, (coughs) So originally you had Anglican priests who were mostly appointed um, by the, the government and they worked with whites. They tended to support slavery. Um, you get non-conformant missionaries um, (coughs) coming with the London Missionary Society, with the Methodists, with Baptists, etc., that start to work with the slaves. Um, They start to educate those slaves, slave leaders, how to read read the Bible. They start to organize people in groups, and they try and get lay slave leaders to move between groups um, to um, help them, because there are not enough missionaries to deal with all the slaves. Um, In 1823, in Demerara, Guyana, uh, there's an uprising that's led by one of these literate uh, slaves who reads uh, a newspaper um, about stuff and he thinks, oh, well, we can do a movement like that here. Um, organizes a movement. It's blamed on the missionary John Smith who's condemned to death um, for it. Um, and he dies in prison um, before he's executed. Um, but they start to burn down the nonconformist conformist churches and harass the missionaries and kick them out. So, um, the missionaries created a lobby, and they had supporters in the colonial office, um, uh, Jim, J- James Stephen, Glenn Elk, etc. Um, so they get the governor of Demerara recalled, removed, and they get them forced to impose um, a slave code, which they can do on the crown colonies, but they can't do in Jamaica, because Jamaica has a legislature. Um, Jamaica continually passes slave codes that don't allow religious liberty, so they keep on getting revoked, not approved, because uh, they have to be approved by the by the colonial office. Um, but they won't allow religious liberty, so they keep on getting revoked. So eventually, in 1828, they disband the parliament in Jamaica, they impose the slave code, and then they reestablish the parliament. Um, but the problem is the magistrates and the judges are all slave owners or have close relationships with slave owners. They don't enforce it. Um, so Uh, James Stephen tries to get the missionaries to help him monitor, so he's feeling the colonial office uh, is being threatened, their authority is being threatened by this, so he tries to get the missionaries to help him monitor the uh, slave code and the the policies that they're imposing. Um, So in June 1829, George Bridges, who was an Anglican priest, and James Petey, who was a magistrate, tried to shut down um, Methodist um, churches in Queen Anne's district of, um, of Jamaica. They got the slave leader, Henry Williams, and they said you have to tell all the slaves they can't go to the Methodist Church, they have to come to the Anglican Church. Um, he refused. He said the Sunday is the Lord's, I can't tell them what to do. I will go to the Anglican Church, but I can't tell the slave- slaves what to do. So they beat him almost to death, put him in the worst uh, slave, um, wor- uh, a sort of prison camp thing on the island and beat him almost to death. So the missionary who worked with him, Isaac Whitehouse, um, applied to a court under the slave code. It was thrown out. Um, he applied to the governor. The governor refused to investigate, so he wrote to uh, James Stephen in, in, um, uh, in the colonial office, and he had the uh, uh, Beatty removed and reprimanded the governor. Um, the next year, Easter 18 th- um, 1830, Sam Sweeney, who was a, sla- a Baptist slave, um, got together and prayed with a group of slaves um, on Easter Sunday morning without a white person present, which was illegal. Um, He was beaten almost to death. Um, So William Nibb, who was the missionary who worked with him, uh, applied both to the court and the colonial office at the same time. The court threw up the case. The colonial office removed both two magistrates and the governor. So in Christmas 1831, the next year, um, uh, a Baptist slave uh, organized a sit-in. So after Christmas, they were allowed Christmas off. The next day, they were all just going to sit down and not get up um, in order to get uh, better conditions. Um, It was repressed violently, the uprising became quite violent, Um, and then they blamed it on the missionaries, and so they started to burn down the non-conformist churches and they tried to to tie and feather wheel and nib, and they put put people in prison and tried to kick them out. So all these missionaries um, get really mad, they're sent back to England, they go around getting people to sign petitions and trying to pressure the government. 59% 59 percent of nonconformists in England and 95 percent of Methodists in England signed pledges for the immediate abolition of slavery. Um, and it was banned in 1834. Um, okay, next slide. If you look at it, um, the British were the only one that had a strong abolitionist social movement. Uh, there's a, some earlier stuff with the French here it's com- complicated. but in terms of uh, abolitionism that sti- sticks, British are the earliest in terms of supporting international. So the British try and ban, get everyone else to ban slavery. Other people don't. Um, the British fund slave amelioration. Others don't. Um, Etc. Uh, the British did not ban slavery under external pressure. All the other places did. Um, now, what is it? It's not just Protestantism because the Dutch were Protestant and they had late abolitionism. <laughs> it's not a secular Enlightenment because all of these countries had secular Enlightenment governments during the period of slavery. Only the British did not. Um, it's not high... Uh, GDP because lots of them did it's l- not having a large of each lots of them did it's the fact that um, they had non-state missionaries <coughs> working with slaves, large numbers of them any other people did not okay, next out of the uh, uh, the success of abolitionism they formed the Aborigines Protection Society under Thomas Fowell Buxton who was a member of parliament who led the campaign for the immediate abolition of slavery um, next slide And they did a survey of missionaries around the world to try and figure out what British was doing to sort of the indigenous people and trying to reform um, British colonial policy um, accordingly. This is the statement of purpose of the society. To investigate what measures ought to be adopted with respect to the native inhabitants of the countries where British settlements are made and to the neighboring tribes in order to secure for them the due observation of justice and the protection of their rights to promote the spread of civilization among them, and to lead to them to the peaceful and voluntary reception of the Christian religion. So you can see there's directly Christian motivation for this abolitionist prediction society. Okay, next slide. If you compare it to acad- academics or colonialists at the time, you can see quite a radical difference. This is a little bit later, but um, this is James Hunt, who was the person who coined the word anthropology to differentiate it from ethnography, which is what missionaries did. Um, he founded the first anthropological society. He edited the first two anthropological journals and he's writing directly critiquing missionaries because they think that black people are the same species as white people and are capable of abstract thought. Um, so, in this endeavor to command anthropology to more general acceptance, we must not hide from ourselves that the two gray schools are on principle decidedly opposed to our pretensions. They disregard and even denounce the truths of anthropology. They do so because these truths are directly opposed to the cardinal principle of absolute and original equality among mankind. The parties to which we refer are the orthodox and especially the evangelical body in religion and the ultra-liberal and democratic party in politics. They hold ideas of political rights and social justice as innocent of scientific data, that is, of the facts as it is in nature, as the wildest of the theological figments which set Exeter Hall in periodic commotion at the never-failing anniversary of missionary enterprises. So Exeter Hall is the the place where a lot of the missionary organizations and social reform movements were based. Uh, It's like a building in London. Next slide. Um, And as the missionaries started to get uh, uh, missionary conventions, they started to put pressure (laughs) for various reforms through these conventions. So this is the London uh, uh, World Missionary Conference in 1888. and it's talking about British colonial policy. Colonial policies such as the opium trade are a very great evil standing in the way of mission work. They are a standing reproach to Christianity and tend to associate in the native minds immorality and Christianity. The outlook in regard to the opium and drink traffic of a so-called Christian country is such as to lead one to question whether on the whole Britain is not a greater curse than a blessing to the world. In Great Britain, we can say to the government when the Treaty of Nanjing, which is imposed by the Opium War on China, expires, the Chinese government shall be left with as much liberty to make a treaty as the government of France is. We must give the government of China perfect liberty to say what terms will be inserted in any renewal of that treaty. For generations to come, China will be the worse for what we have done. It is impossible to consider the condition of China through our action in this matter without feeling that one has not words to express our sorrow, that the land we love should have any connection with a business so fearful." We have, to reckon with, with, we have to reckon with divine judgment if we neglect this matter. We have wronged China as I believe no nation has ever wronged another. Okay, This is hardly boosterism for colonialism. You see? okay, it's, it, there's, there's that association, but when you read the documents and look at the history, it is really not. They're fighting colonialism. They're fighting all the time. Now, some people cooperate. It's not all fighting. It's, it's, it's quite complex. Um, but these movements... Um, in British colonialism are quite strong and important. Um, Next. And you can demonstrate the importance of missionary presence uh, empirically. So in the early 20th century, you get an explosion in the price of rubber. People are going into the jungles in central Africa to try and extract rubber. They set up these monopoly trade companies, which don't really want to pay people for the rubber. So instead they tell people that if you give us rubber, we we won't kill you, basically. A little bit more complex than that, but basically. Um, So in Belgian and French Congo, you get... It's hard to estimate exactly what happens to the population climb, but basically they set up these proxy African armies that go in. If you don't give your quota of rubber, um, they burn down your village and your crops and they try and kill you. To try and prove that they have killed people, um, at least in some cases, they would chop off the hands or the penises of the people that they killed and bring them in and be paid in iron rods to... um, Demonstrate that they had done their duty because it's way off in the jungle and no one can monitor them. Um, in the process, then the vil- people leave the villages um, to escape this, and you get a population decline of about 15 percent. I mean, 50 percent in 20 years. 50 percent population decline in 20 years. Okay, so massive depopulation. Um, in Belgian Congo, you got the largest international protest against abolitionism. In French Congo, you got nothing. You got one article that appeared in one Marxist newspaper and no social protest. Same abuses, right next door to each other, same time. Why? Next slide. In order to get the Congo, the Belgians, the Belgian king, King Leopold, was forced to allow Protestant missionaries because he needed the support of the Swedes, the Americans, and the English. So you have all these Protestant mission stations in the rubber regions in Congo. The French didn't need that, and they kept them all out. The missionaries monitored what happened and took pictures of it. Next slide. This is a picture taken by two Baptist missionaries. Nyasala of the district of Walla looking at the severed hand and foot of a five year old daughter, Boali, a victim of the Anglo Belgian rubber company. Next slide. Um, okay. So they took pictures like these. And they went around England and the United States and Sweden, meeting in churches, showing people the pictures, and raising social protest. And the British, I mean, the the Belgians fought it. They denied that it existed. But with pictures like this from people that people trusted, it was very hard to fight. And they were forced to take over the Belgian Congo from King Leopold and make it a state. Now, they punished the missionaries, so they tried to make it hard for Protestants to get land. They made it degrees from Protestant schools invalid. So the Catholics could, the Catholics didn't report on it. They were given state funding and their degrees counted. Any degree from a Protestant school could not count to get you a government job or get you into a Catholic school or a government school. So they basically tried to defund Protestants because they reported on us. But anyway, that's what happened. Next slide. Um, cumulative these things together have a profound impact influence on education, health, economic development, corruption, and other outcomes throughout the world, we can show this both statistically and we can both show it spatially. Next slide. Um, Not all of you don't know statistics, so I'll just show you pictures. These are maps. <laughs> this is India. Okay. Um, this is looking at literacy. The highest literacy is in Kerala, Nagaland, Goa, Mizoram. Okay. Um, What do these places have in common? Okay. This is mountainous jungle. There was no written language before the 1890s. Um, This is South India. Um, They happen to be the centers of Christianity in India. So, the most Christians in India are in these four places. Okay, these people are almost all Baptists. They converted to... Baptists, they all are literate. Okay, So these are the center of Christianity in India. They're not the center of political power, they're not the center of trade, they're not the center of where governments send resources, etc. They're the center of Christianity. Next. Now if we look at infant mortality, notice the same places. Okay? Why? Same reason. Next slide.
4: Can I ask you a question? Yeah.
2: Uh, Recently in France, I read
4: to a a fairly large group of Catholics yeah. we from South India.
2: Yes. Yeah. yeah, there are a lot of Catholics there too. There are a lot of Catholics there in South India, in Kerala and Goa. So in, in the case of India, it's not just Protestants. It, this is also both Protestants and Catholics. When you have competition, the Catholics act like Protestants in terms of doing education. <laughs> so, okay, I'll, I'll show you, how, how, you tell, how you tell the difference. If you look at Catholic education in the United States or in Australia or India or England, it's very good, and there's lots of it. If you look at Catholic education in Italy, in Spain, in Mexico, in Portugal, it's not very good. It's not that the Catholics didn't have an influence in Italy. It's not. They had quite a bit of influence there. <laughs> okay? It's that they didn't have to compete with Protestants. And if you look at the colonial situation, it's exactly the same. In British colonies, uh, Catholics invest massively in education. In other colonies, they did not. Okay? And you can even show the timing, because the Catholics start missions way before the Protestants do. And they don't do they do a small number of leaded education until you get Protestant missionaries and then all of a sudden they do mass education. And you can show directly.
5: All around the world. Okay? So it's almost like an economic argument. Right. It is, yeah. It's
2: an economic <laughs> argument for everyone else other than Protestants. So Hindus do it, Muslims do it, etc. When you get Protestant competition, then they start investing in mass education. Okay? But you can show the timing. Same thing with printing, same thing with newspapers. Okay? You can show exactly the timing, you can show exactly who's copying who. Okay? And you can, go, you can even look on borders. So like in Sri Lanka you can see the places where the missionaries were not allowed in the, the Buddhist heartland less education. They worked with the Tamils. Um, so that leads to violence though because the, Br- the Buddhists didn't get education the, Tom- the Hindu Tamil did. The Tamil move up then the Buddhists resent it then you, you know, blah blah blah. Okay? But you can show these spatially and ethnically. Um, okay, next impact of uh, ghosts. There we go. <coughs> So I argue that all of these things disperse power, they create civil society, voluntary organizations prior to decolonization, and they provide political parties prior to decolonization, and they force the British to more gradually give over power, um, so that people get experience running these types of organizations, they get experience competing political parties and uh, having elections prior to decolonization. Other colonizers do it right before. Like, oh, we're going to go away, so let's have an election. Okay? But it, it doesn't tend to be stable when you have five years' experience of it. Okay? Whereas if you have 80 years or 90 years, it tends to be more stable. Okay? And because you start all these processes a lot earlier with the British, it lasts longer. Okay? Uh, next, so Protestants and democracy. Um, you can make an a, a, a argument about Protestantism and democracy in Europe um, and the settler colonies. So the origin of stable representative democracy in Europe and the settler colonies happens first in Protestant co- countries, okay? You get unstable democracies in places like France um, uh, where you had a significant Jansenist presence, which was sort of a Calvinist-like group, um, and some early Protestant group uh, influence, and, and in Belgium, which also had Protestants and Jansenists historically. Um, although it's still complex, um, uh, Germany had a lot of Protestants and wasn't very democratic because um, you have, in terms of the whole territory, there's more Catholics, but the Protestants, the Prussians were Protestant, and the nonconformists joined with the state church in order to sort of keep the Catholics out of power, and so it leads in a non-democratic way in Germany I and then know, also se- South Africa and s- South.
6: I was going to ask that, but I mean, because you're talking about the 1800s here, yeah, uh, and you know, Martin Luther was. Hundreds of years before mm-hmm. that and, and obviously Protestantism had been all the rage, but yet the German and the Italian unification efforts and the, the, the whole nine yards of fights with the city-states and right. the, all that didn't happen until the mid- mid-19th century. Right. So you've got a 300-year gap mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. and you're saying the reason is is because the Protestant non-conformist churches hung with the government? Yeah, well you get, you get the pietists, okay, the I'm not an expert on Germany, and we don't want to get too far into
2: Germany, because one, that's getting away from where my expertise is, but also it's complex. But basically, the short version of it is, um, the pietists work in, get support from the Prussian uh, Kaiser, uh-huh. and work inside the state church, and then therefore don't threaten the state church, and then in the 19th century where you get the unification of Germany there's the sort of um, attempt to crush the power of the Catholic Church and um, there's the Kulturkampf and then there is the tr- a forced unification of the Lutherans and the Calvinists yeah. mm-hmm. um, which leads to the Missouri Synod Lutheran from the US um, uh, and anyway it just doesn't have the same type of effect in Germany it leads to lots of education it leads to printing it leads to other things but not democracy. Yeah. Okay.
7: Yeah. Sorry. Isn't I mean uh, Germany was pretty late um, to the game when it came to colonialism. And yes, it was. Was it like World War One largely, you know, uh, outgrowth of that? They're they're trying to make up for lost time with Europe. I don't know. I, but, uh, but anyway, they wrong. were they didn't have nearly as many colonies as these no, other. No, they countries.
2: didn't. They were very late, and all of them got taken away in World War One. Yeah. So yeah. Um, anyways. So lots of people say in Europe it's not really Protestantism; it's something about why did Protestants go to the Netherlands and Protestants go to England, whatever. Okay. So what you can do is you can say, well, um, and then also, sorry, also statistically, the the percent Protestant higher. If you have more Protestants in your country, on average, you have a higher level of democracy and also more stable democratic transitions. So if you become a democracy, you're more likely to stay it if you have more Protestants than if you have more something else. Particularly more Muslims. But th- and now some of that is changing with the Catholic Church, has also done a lot of work of democracy recently. But people say, oh, it's not really Protestantism, it's something else. So how do we deal with that? Next slide.
4: Next slide.
2: Right. Oh. It doesn't like you. Well, <laughs> there! Oh, <hey>, <laughs> okay, so there's a series of natural experiments. <clears throat> First, settler colonies. US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand Protestant settler colonies. Argentina, Uruguay, uh, Chile, Costa Rica, Catholic settler colonies. Where the vast majority of people are European. Okay? Protestant settler colonies, on average, more democratic than Catholic settler colonies. But maybe that's British colonialism versus Spanish colonialism. Who knows? Okay? Eastern Europe, former Soviet Union. Here's a little bit more complex. Both Protestant and Catholic Eastern European societies and former Soviet republics are more democratic than Orthodox or Muslim.
6: Can you say that again? I'm sorry. Okay. So if we look
2: at Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. the countries that are historically Protestant or Catholic are more democratic, on, have been on average, had an easier transition than the, the ones that are Orthodox or Muslims. Okay. And that's also true in the former Soviet Union. So the ones that are like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, historically Protestant and Catholic, more mm-hmm. democratic than all the other ones that are Orthodox and Muslim. Okay? Okay. Even if we look at the former Yugoslavia, same pattern.
5: What are examples of Orthodox and Muslim?
2: S- uh Albania, in Eastern Europe, uh, with Serbia. What? Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan. what? Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is most historically Muslim. Okay. It's a former Soviet republic. Right. Okay. Okay. are themselves mostly Orthodox. Right. Struggling. Belarus, etc. Okay. Um, so, anyways, there seems to be a religious pattern, even when you change the land tenure system. You educated people in Marxism and Enlightenment thought forever. You made everyone secular, all kinds of things. It's still there's this religious event. Then we look through the missionary movement. So, what made missionaries go to a particular places? They're trying to convert people. Okay, it's not based on land tenure system. I can show that. It's not based on all these things that are said. Oh, that's what caused it in Europe. Okay, it's not about the relationship between aristocracy and the crown, et cetera. It's by other factors. Okay, next slide. Um, So I gave you some of the historical arguments about why I think Protestant missionaries matter. But statistically, we can show that as well. Um, So I measure democracy. This is probably the best measure of democracy that we use, but I do it with multiple measures. It's consistent. It doesn't matter which measure of democracy you use. Um, Then I measure Protestant missions in three ways. Number of Protestant missionaries in 1923, length of Protestant missionary activity activity in your country before 1960, and... um, uh, number of people exposed to evangelism by 1900, which is an estimate from another source that I didn't create. But then it makes it something I didn't create. See? Mm-hmm. Next slide. Um, so there's alternate means where you could get diffusion of democracy, Catholic missions, European settlers, different colonizers, the British, the French, blah, 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 blah. Um, having a written language prior to missionary contact. Next slide. Um, there's alternate causes. So islands are more democratic, land countries are less Places with more uh, oil are less, people where there's more cellular mortality is less, etc. Okay? These could be alternative causes. Um, next slide. Um, but I try and measure lots of things that would cause where missionaries go. Um, but some things you can't measure. So I try and measure it latently by behavior. Okay? So, I have the date when it was a country was first sighted by Europeans after 1444. Okay, and so that is a measure of how difficult it was to get to Europe by sea or land and then the gap between when it was sighted and when missionaries arrived shows how valuable missionaries considered that place to be because if you really want to go there you're going to go there as quickly as you can now there's things that stop you one of those things is disease and another thing is the military that says no sorry you can't come in here Okay, so this is related to latitude how close you are to the equator This is related to having a (coughs) missionary literate language. So, the countries that had written languages could have stronger militaries, like China, India, the Middle East. Okay. Same thing for colonizers. The places that they colonize, the things they think are valuable, they're going to colonize quickly relative to the cost. The things that keep you from colonizing them are disease or militaries. You see? Then also, if you colonize a place and it's really valuable, people will want to take it away from you. Okay. So every time someone Tries to take it away from you, you're saying that place is valuable. So if you count all those times, then you know this is the place that all the colonists think is valuable because they're all trying to take it away from each other. Got it? <laughs> then the last one is the British and the Dutch end up having better navies than the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French, the Italians, whatever. So they can take away the colonies that they really want, which then can make Protestant missionaries go to those colonies which are already advantaged because obviously the ones with the best military. Took them because they wanted them. So if Protestants took them from Catholics, then that's coded too. You see? Next slide. And then there's alternative causes: how economically developed you are, education. But these could be intervening mechanisms because I think missionaries shape these things. Percent Muslim, percent Protestant, percent non-religious. Okay? Next slide. Um, you most of you will not understand this, so. I have tables for you if you want, but um, most people you won't understand it. I'll just give you the, the sort of lowdown. Those of you who understand it, great. Those of you who don't, doesn't matter. So basically, <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it to you, orally. So these are basically this is a standard model that predicts democracy that's like printed all done all the time. Okay, I just took a standard model and published it. So British colonialism, British colonies, and other Protestant colonies are more democratic, other than the Dutch um, places that are further from the equator are more democratic, islands are more democratic, landlocked countries are less, places with more Europeans are more, places with more Muslims are less, etc. Okay? Once we control for Protestant missions though, all of those go away. None of them matter. So these are what people have been publishing about for 40 years. When you control for them, they all go away. Okay. That's shocking to most social scientists. Now, if we have Catholic missionaries, it doesn't matter. And if we drop all of those variables, and just have Dutch colonization, because they had early Protestant missionaries, but they controlled them like Catholics. Okay? They had lots of regulations on them. Um, and Protestant missions, it explained as much variation as this. Right? So, like, we drop all of those, we don't lose any predictive power. None.
6: Can you, can you say that again? I'm lost. I'm okay. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, it's statistic. Okay? It's a statistic. Okay. Let's see.
2: We have we have variation in democracy. We're trying to predict that. Okay. In the
6: different countries that they're colonizing. Yeah. So n- no. Or the so different yeah, colonies. It's different countries
2: that currently exist. Okay. Okay. So there's all these countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, Oceania, all of them. Right. Okay. We have their level of democracy from 1950 to in one measure through 1994, and in the other measure through 2007. Okay. And then we're trying to predict what the average level of democracy in your country is after you become independent ah. until the end of your measure. Okay? okay? So you're talking about average level of democracy in a country.
6: Okay. You see? So the average number. Or
2: you, you have a score. You can, you can be a, up to 100 or you can be zero. 100 would be. Zero is like totally undemocratic, and 100 is perfectly democratic. Okay? 100. Okay. Okay. okay? So you're ranging in your score based on freeness and fairness of elections, ability to people to organize, human rights violations, independence of your courts, all that kind of stuff. You're more or less democratic depending on those things. Okay. So you're going up or down in okay. your country. Okay. You see? see? So then we're trying to predict that with other things. With Protestant missions we can explain half of the variation in democracy, which is huge
6: okay huge in the in the in the countries in between Oceana countries and latin america yeah and between canada. countries
2: yeah so if we drop europe us canada australia new zealand those are not in the sample right and we take all the other countries uh-huh we can predict half of the variation in the democracy with just their history of protestant missions
6: so so if they if they have a history of protestant missions they're Twice as likely to be No, no okay,
2: that, that's not twice like it. So here, for each additional Sorry. year of Protestant missions, uh-huh. you are likely to go up. On average, you are 1.5 points higher on the democracy scale. I see. You see? Okay, But But okay. all of this together is explaining the variation in democracy. Okay, I see, okay. You, you see? Yeah. But this is what people have been writing about for 40 years, and it all goes away and adds no, none, zero explanatory power to Protestant missions. None. Okay? That shocks people. I see. That's okay. part of why it's so hard to publish this. Because it's it's like, no, that's crazy.
6: You're telling, you're telling basically 40 years of accepted fact that that's wrong. Right. right. I see. Okay? So to get this published, I had to turn in like
2: 30 some tables. I had to write 102 pages of extra material. You had to
1: turn over your
2: data? I had to turn over my data. The editor had to rerun all my models to check that I wasn't making it up and to check that they were robust if you changed things. Seriously, I'm not lying to you. It took two years of just that's all I did. Yeah. Demonstrate after giving the paper in. Okay? So, it, but anyway, these effects are are massive and they're very, very robust. Honestly, If they were easy to change, like, it wouldn't be... Like, what I went through is crazy. Seriously, I've never in my life heard anyone come anywhere close to the level of proof i had to give for this paper. Okay? Um, Next slide. This will be even more confusing for people. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's something called instrumenting. Okay? Called what? Uh, Instrumenting. Okay? Okay? Which you don't even understand. But, basically, I get all these tables controlling for everything you can possibly think of you know, like 24 measures of soil quality and temperature and climate and blah, 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 and you, 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 name, you name it, I control for it. But you can never prove that you've controlled for everything. You see? There's maybe something that you didn't control for. It's a problem called emitted variable bias. Okay? We can never prove that you've never done it. What I can show is that if, if it is all caused by emitted variable bias. By what? Omitted variable bias.
3: Ad- admitted variable Omitted. bias. Omitted.
2: Omitted. Omitted. Okay. Omitted. Variable bias. So uh, let, let's say education on average leads to more income. Okay? But how much is the education and how much is other things? So people who work harder get more education. People who come from families with more money get more education. People who are more intelligent get more education, etc. What's education? What's intelligence? Was education with DC? We can never prove that we've removed everything, and we're only looking at the effect of education. Got that? Same thing with democracy. Yeah.
7: An example of this is you can correlate shoe size with spelling ability.
2: Right, but that's related to age.
7: Exactly. Okay. So Older if we control for age, shoes. it'll
2: remove the effect of shoe size on uh, ability to spell. Yeah. Okay. What, what N- in my case, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, there's a technique that you can use that's called instrumenting, which, if you do it correctly, and your assumptions are meant, although you can't prove them, you've removed the problem of admitted variable bias. Okay? Well, basically, <laughs> if you can find something that predicts missionaries, but doesn't predict democracy, except through a mechanism that you're controlling for in your regression, then, and you use the predicted values of missionaries using your instrument, You have removed emitted variable bias, and it's a causal relationship. Okay?
3: Could you say that again?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's not necessary. Okay. It's complex, and I I don't want to give a statistic lesson. I'd rather have you ask other questions rather than get caught up in the details of it. Just say this is a technique that's very advanced. That, like, this is—it's a way to try and deal with this problem. I did it in nine different ways. Right. Okay. Every way it predicts for all of the mission variables. Okay? So, what that means is, you have, you have these 30 tables, somehow I didn't control for the right thing, it has to be something that's not there, that I haven't control for, that's causing this effect, and then, for each one of these instruments, you need to have a totally different story of how that tr- predicts democracy, but without leaving any statistical trace of it. Okay? Because there's ways you can test this, and it, it goes by applying colors. I mean, these work really well. So, you have to have lots of different stories, each one has to be different because it's a different instrument for how it secretly causes democracy even though it's leaving no trace. Okay? Which is really hard. And if it's all caused by omitted variable bias, you need to have a emitted variable that is co- as correlated with democracy as another measure of democracy. Okay? The admitted variable correlation would have to be 0.841 with democracy. The two measures of democracy I have, their correlation is 0.844. Okay? So it has to be as correlated with democracy as another measure of democracy. And more than twice as correlated with Protestant missions as another measure of Protestant missions. Because the correlation between my three Protestant missionary variables ranged from 0.312 to 0.348. Okay? So more than twice as strong correlated with the Protestant missions as Protestant mission is, is with itself. Okay? If you can think of a variable like that, good luck seriously okay I don't know how statistically you could do that okay so the evidence for this is really 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 strong but because people think omissions is bad missions is evil religion is bad this is all whatever they don't even look okay and I can both both show statistically and historically and in individual case studies I had to do five of them to get this accepted new case studies of different countries um, how this works so anyway
3: I, I
1: have a pathway yeah. question now. In, in these models do you, where do you think the story of uh, missionaries are kept out because the government is really strict and anti-democracy right. and then that's the path do you see that in
2: well um, yeah I mean if, if that could be a, that could be a path mm-hmm. um, but if you limit it to British colonies for example it works within British colonies okay Um, And even if you control for level of British colonial penetration. So um, I measure uh, number of uh, colonial police officials per capita, uh, number of court cases decided in colonial courts versus traditional courts, um, whether it was a forced settlement colony, Mm -hmm. um, et cetera, to try and get at the measures of... British colonial penetration. Right. Mm-hmm. All of them predict democracy until you control for Protestant missions, and then they don't. Mm-hmm. And you're just looking within British colonies.
6: Yeah. And what when when you start controlling with Protestant missions, that's when all the numbers change. change. Yeah. They become insignificant. Which which is oh,
2: you're not trying to But basically, um, you're you're, you're trying. You're trying to look at whether the association between, like, this variable and your d- and, the, and democracy is greater than we'd expect by chance.
6: Yeah. Right, 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 right. Okay? So, I mean, if it was chance, you could say, you know, the percentage, I mean, just to use the example before of shoe sizes or something right. like that. So it's, it's more than just a Well, it's, it's, not, it's
2: not just chance. Yeah. It's, it's ch- you have to have your spec- properly specified model. So shoe size will predict spelling ability greater than chance. But it's not causal because it's really caused by your age. As you get older, your foot size increases. You see? <laughs> so if you control for age, it removes the effect of shoe size on spelling ability. Because not too many 30-year-old men have 4 size baby shoes. Exactly. Got it. Okay? Yeah. okay? So it's two things. It's greater than chance, but also your model has to be properly specified. I see.
6: Okay, that makes sense.
2: Which is why you're doing, I'm doing 30... S- Tables of stuff. Trying to say, well, it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this,
6: and it's not. Because not that. you had the burden of proof was put right, on right. you because the assumption is that you're wrong. Right. Or that you have an agenda or an axe to grind. I right. see. Right. I see.
2: Okay. But anyways, it got through. So it's coming out in the American Political Science Review, which is the best journal in political science, in May.
0: Yeah. So
5: I'm happy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. How much is your research
5: gonna is your research gonna change anything? Are we gonna hear about this because it's such a big deal, or or is this gonna be pushed under the rug like like they were trying to do you before you
2: <laughs> I am not a prophet. <laughs> I do not know how to predict the future. You don't know, right. know how to answer that. Yeah. It could. Can you do it, a statistical test? Yeah. 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 yeah,
4: yeah,
5: yeah. Yeah, we have
2: to properly specify the yeah. Uh, I mean, model. Who knows? I mean. There was two different editors that were involved in this. Both of them think that this is going to transform the field. Mm. And it told me so. The field. Oh, it so. It <laughs> I don't field. know how you get kicked out of UT, or I don't know why
4: uh, people that... Okay, so you ha- it has to be like... Somebody
5: does not like the idea of missions being a big deal. Oh, sure, yeah, that's true. In sociology. Yeah. But assuredly, there has to be schools that aren't that insane against
4: missionaries that would pick you up because of the National, National university, university of Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think uh, you okay. missing yeah. something, though. Would what, what you really take off the layer and look for petty? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay, I, I applied to 108 schools. Wow. I got interviews at Calvin College, which is a Christian liberal arts school, and National University of Singapore. Wow. I got offers at both. Um, But when you apply to 108 schools, it's a huge range. And I have a pretty good record. So I have over 430 citations, which is good for someone at my level. I have an article in the best journal in sociology, the third best journal in sociology and the best journal in political science. Um, I have a lot of publications. I have almost $900,000 in grant money, external grant money. I was run up for the uh, Friar Centennial Teaching Fellowship, which is the most prestigious teaching award at UT. Um, uh, I I have a lot of stuff. Um, I didn't get any job offer in the United States, or interview in the United States, other than Calvin College. Uh, there can be re- at the top schools it can be well he didn't get tenure so there must be something wrong with him mm-hmm. um, at the bottom schools it could be like well he's too good we'll never get him mm. but in the middle schools <laughs> uh, something else is going on he the doesn't, t- he doesn't to like fit the,
4: uh, it's the politics of this are so complex yeah, that uh, we don't have the time tonight uh, to take that apart, look at it carefully, but we can both assure you that it's a, it's a political issue more than any other kind of issue. Yeah. So, at any rate, you know,
2: it's a. Uh, yeah. Right. I, 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 I I do controversial
6: work. You do. Yeah. Is there anyone else in the country who does who does what you do or does at this same marketing level? Th- there,
2: there wasn't when I started. There is now, um, so there actually there's a number of people, particularly in economics. So um, there's a bunch of people at Harvard and MIT who are economists who are starting to work on this. Um, there's some economists in, in Hong Kong, and uh, uh, there's a political scientist at. at uh, Florida State, and there's some sociologists at Yale mm-hmm. that are all starting to do work on missions yeah. because of this.
6: Because of your work, right? Yeah. Wow.
4: Um, Would you think probably I will give it ten years. Ten years from now, uh, this will totally change position.
2: Possibly. We'll see. Um, I read
3: the Poisonwood Bible, right? <laughs> right.
2: But see that that like okay. The the, the two biggest questions I get. No, the Poisonwood Bible started obsolete now. When I started this, I get all the time. But what about the Poisonwood Bible? And I'm like, it's a novel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sociologist. <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> the Poisonwood
2: Bible. It's about it's a it's a book about missions in the Congo that's very 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 critical by an MK who sort of had a really mean evil father and rebelled against him. Um, but then people read it, and then they see movies like you know, Playing the Field of the Lord or various things like that, and they think that's missionaries. And those are movies. And there are, I mean, they are terrible missionaries, just like there's terrible anything. But I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the average effect. Yeah. You know, the average effect. Um, so there's really terrible people, sure, but we don't want to make that the whole
6: thing. Just like there's terrible anyone. Well, right, but you've but you got to think about what, what people, I mean, it, it's the same as, as uh, the, the people place the burden of proof. On, on scripture itself mm-hmm. like okay well there are, all, there are all these proofs within the first couple hundred years the first few decades after Christ ra- was was raised from the tomb and yet it's not 100% literature proof to our standards today you know mm-hmm. they're expecting our standards today for what was 2,000 years ago it's like well if it's not today what it was 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago you see what I'm saying it's mm-hmm. like and, and I and I really think the reason for that is that they don't want, to s- there's a lot of people that see the claims that mm-hmm. the Bible makes on their hearts and their actions, mm-hmm. uh, and it puts ultimate truth square in their visions, and they don't like that. Mm-hmm. And so if they find uh, a way to say, no, because of this or that or the other thing, and I mean, you can, I could see why that would make a lot of negative impact on, on your research, at mm-hmm. least from an outsider's perspective, or a someone who doesn't like what you have to say even if it's proven they're going to be looking for some reason to disprove you right. simply because they don't want to submit to what you have right. to say. Right. Well, there's a whole variation.
2: There's lots of people who are really fair and really um, open-minded about stuff, and then there's people who are very political. Uh, on, on hiring situations, it's harder because you have to sort of complete the whole committee, and if yeah. you have one who's really, really negative on you, people don't want to go against them and make an enemy of someone mm-hmm. that they have to live with. But there's a lot of people... Like, the people who started researching it on this, none of them are religious. None of them. And I've had people, like the people who defended me most in the, the department, most of them are not religious. Um, I've had a number of people try and get me to you know, publish this as a book, at like Oxford or Cambridge or various things like that. The people who asked me are not religious. Um, the people who interviewed me and hired me at N- NUS are not religious. So it's, it's complex. Um, there's a lot of um, people who are really fair and there's a lot of people who are not. Um, but there's a lot of politics in, in academia and um, um, I just don't want to paint it all as sort of one thing because yeah. there's lots of people that like I talk about this and they're like oh my goodness that makes so much oh that's so interesting and like they're not religious at all. There's not a religious bone in their body but they're they just they're intellectually open and and they know enough of the history to, to see that this works. Um, it's the people who don't know that are the ones that mostly get upset, or are, who are very ideological Marxists or something like that, that, that get upset, yeah. I a question uh, regarding the time period. Is there a certain aspect of mission movement that is more effective in promoting these things than uh, other periods? Or yes, yes, yes definitely. The er- earlier, it's a lot more powerful and effective. Okay. Um, now it's much less so, for multiple reasons. Um, they're the first people that develop these cross-national organizations and these pressure tactics. So when, it's, when they start out, they're the only ones that can organize this way. As they're successful, the, the slave owners or the former slave owners and the various colonial um, settlers and stuff like that start to copy their tactics to limit their power. So they start to, over time, they get less and less influence over British colonialism. In the first part of the 19th century, they have a ton of influence, and then it goes down. Um, you also start over time. You get change in the media sources. So right. historically, people got most of their international news from missionary newspapers and letters and stuff like that, and traveling missionaries. Now they don't. Now we have CNN, we have Time, although like Time was started by a missionary kid. Um, you know, a lot of these newspa- mag- magazines, international news magazines, work. But um, over time, they take over, and we no longer get our news from missionaries. Also, after independence, before they linked the colonized people with the colonizing country, and they weren't benefiting from these abuses, they are mostly being hurt by them, so they had incentive to fight them. Once you get rid of decoloniz- once you have decolonization, they don't have any preferential influence with whoever's in power in the country right now. And they don't want to get kicked out. So they can get kicked out, they can have their stuff shut off, they can have their local converts or local friends arrested, tortured, whatever. So it has a tendency to make them keep their mouth shut now. Mm -hmm. Now, they're informants for places like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and stuff like that. I've talked to missionaries and I know they do that. um, The work then is done through, they become an information, an anonymous information source which is then used by Human Rights Watch and things like that because they're on the the ground they see what's going on. Yeah. I
4: was wondering um, when were these
1: I assume like these missionaries were there, mm-hmm. this was like common
2: knowledge to England and sure. when and how were they forgotten? Well, you, we, you, you have multiple there, there's multiple processes that go on. Um, you, you get indigenous nationalist movements um, who don't want to give credit to foreigners. And you get Western academics who are embarrassed to give credit to foreigners because they don't want to be, it's all about Europe and North, it sounds Eurocentric, Western-centric. Um, and, and many of the, well, the early nationalist leaders were, were pretty close with missionaries, many of them. The later generation, they get radicalized over time and become more radical and more anti-missionary um, because the missionaries are not radical enough. So the r- missionaries are sort of in between people. Not they're, they're more radical than most of the white settlers and British colonial officials, but they're not as radical as the nationalists. And then you get this resentment. And also, they're running schools and missionary organizations, and they're a little bit not fast enough in, in transferring leadership to indigenous people. So you get people who grew up and came up in the missionary school with the white principal who just comes in because they came from America or wherever, and you get resentment against that. So some of it is that sort of anti-missionary thing that develops in that context. You also get Marxist critiques, um, so where religion is all about the opium of the people, kind of stuff like that. You also get um, uh, sort of a reaction against religion and against missionaries, and you have a very secular academia. Um, and all those factors together, I think, get to people not studying them. Go on. Yeah, you, were saying. I, I have a, a, a question. I'm just thinking about, uh, I know a little bit about where money comes from that
4: goes into the Congo and Africa. Right. And I'm wondering if did you track it all uh, with uh, where the money comes from to finance uh, the missionaries' Catholic crosses in Africa? Um,
2: no, I have data on that uh, in particular years, but I haven't looked at that yet because it was I've just been doing this part. So I've been looking at mission missionaries, the number of missionaries as a rough measure of their influence. Per capita.
1: Yeah? Yeah, so I have a question about like how you see these processes that could maybe be replicated in different like, post-colonial contexts, mm-hmm. like the same sort of generational things seem to happen like, with the American Civil Rights Movement, for right. instance, which doesn't really link to colonialism or post-colonialism. So right. How does that like, um, help explain, like how could you maybe apply this sort of method or structure of argument to kind of other situations that are not necessarily related to colonial, post-colonial
2: well, okay, um, Protestant missionaries were the ones who set up virtually all the schools for blacks mm-hmm. in the South. Yeah. Many southern states banned northern missionaries from coming down because they worked and were educating blacks in the South, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the things most people don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, the leadership of the Civil Rights Movement was mostly pastors, yeah. where they organized these things, and, and people like Rosa Parks, I forget the name of the school in Appalachia, but like um, went there and was trained on civil Duke's disobedience. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't just like a spontaneous not sitting on the back of right, There's that,
1: still that sort of like early period of like really strong Protestant, and then later with that Malcolm, X, Malcolm X, you get that sort of rejection
0: yeah. of it.
2: Yeah. You get you get exactly the same type of pattern where over time it becomes more radicalized, mm-hmm. and the pastors and the religious allies are not radical enough. Yeah. And so then it becomes much more Marxist, much more crit- critical conversion to Islam, and various other things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, even though Muslims had slavery before Europe and after Europe, and only banned it through very strong direct European pressure that was done by Protestant missionaries.
1: Yeah.
2: So, do yeah. um so you think <laughs> this is something that's
1: sort of like really sort of just built into like Protestant evangelicalism itself that like it doesn't really matter the environment in which it's in necessarily, but like the sort of core of ideas is always going to sort of have that kind of similar effect.
2: Well, yeah, I think ideas matter, mm-hmm. and to the extent that, well, Protestantism changes. So different yeah. types of Protestantism <laughs> will have different effects. <laughs> but a core thing that has been very consistent in Protestantism is the idea that everyone has to read the Bible in their own language, which means you need to have a written language, which means you need to be able to read, and it means you need to have access to cheap printing, for example. Also, um non-conformists, certain ex- segments of Protestants have been very strong on religious liberty. They're the ones who push it all around the world historically in Europe and North America, but also in in the colonies, Um, not others. Um, And so then in order to run an organization voluntarily, you need to have instill volunteerism and charity in your congregation, where you train them to give money, and you train them to volunteer time, which is not a natural behavior,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. and which other groups have not done. You get sponsorship by governments or from very wealthy people. and those, the skills that people do in terms of Sunday school and revivals and religious types of organizing things are things that they can use for other types of political action. Now once those patterns get detached from religion, other people can learn them from Amnesty International or whatever. Like Amnesty International and it was started by Quakers, as was Greenpeace. And all these, so many groups that we think of as secular were started by religious groups.
0: Um,
2: now they're detached and you can learn the skills. You don't have to become a Quaker to learn how to make something like Greenpeace but <laughs> the way you started it. Uh, why don't you, and then you.
1: Okay. Um, just wondering what... Um, your knowledge of all of these factors, what kind of perspective does that give you on the current social movements toward democracy um, that we see, like,
3: last year, the Arab Spring? Arab Spring? That, yeah. mm-hmm.
2: That's hard. I mean, um, we'll see how they develop. I hope it works. Um, A lot of these things... They they become detached and become world of, part of world culture. It's the idea that everyone should have mass education. Okay, lots of people think that now. These voluntary organization forms. I can show how they develop in the Middle East, the Muslim Brotherhood, etc. Um, is a reaction to Protestant missions, and they copy some of the organizational forms um, to do that. Same thing with Buddhist organizations. Young Men Buddhist Association. What does that sound like? You know, okay. There's also a Young Men's Muslim Association. You know? You okay, okay. okay, like, they're copying directly. The Y-M-B-A. <laughs> People just think you have a list for something. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so, I, I, those things could matter. Now, I think your beliefs about uh, religious liberty, religious minorities, uh, rule of law, uh, whether it should be a a fixed Islamic law, for example, or not, those may have implications for democracy, and particularly a liberal democracy in terms of treatment of religious minorities and other minorities. But we'll see how it develops. They at least need a chance to try. And. Democracy is messy. Our transition to democracy was not easy or <coughs> direct. Um, we totally certainly disenfranchised blacks and Native Americans for a long time and women. Um, we had a good bit of violence um, uh, yeah. at the beginning. So we'll see hopefully, hopefully it'll work. One thing I do know is that if you get an Islamic government, um, it has there's nothing better for undermining Islam than having an Islamic government. Um, Where people convert to Christianity is wherever you get an Islamic government. Where people start to like the United States rather than hate it is where you get an Islamic government. So Pakistan, they don't have an Islamist government and they hate the US and they burn down churches and all kinds of stuff. But Iran, like, go to Tehran, talk to people. They're like, oh, America, America. And the, the church is growing like gangbusters in Iran. Like, crazy. Okay? Because they all hate the, uh, the Ayatollahs. Now, <coughs> anyways, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how it goes. But, I mean, it, I think it's a positive development. I think it's cool. You're next, and then you. Uh,
7: so, uh, one of the things you said, I guess, was that the the Protestants really, uh, they wanted everybody to read the Bible. Right. And as, app- as opposed to, say, the Catholics, which were not uh, so zealous about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, are, do you, um, would there be any correlation perhaps also with the polity of the different types of churches like the, uh, Catholic is uh, Episcopalian, yeah, they're an Episcopalian polity, mm-hmm. or does that get wiped or out? Episcopalian when you... is Catholic polity.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, I, you know, top down, <laughs> centralize. I know what you're was, meaning.
7: i just you know, laughing. <laughs> or, or, yeah, I mean, I'm using, or, or if you look at the Methodist and the Episcopalians as well as the Catholics, which all have that idea of an right. episcopal polity, right. does that kind of cancel out and is that not very significant?
2: Um, I think, well, it, it, it matters some and it matters not, but not totally directly. So Methodists were huge in a lot of these things. There's a lot of involvement of lay people in Methodism. Um, they were central to abolitionism mm-hmm. and temperance and a lot of spreading elites to social movement tactics around the world. Um, they were very big on things. So I, I don't think there's a negative effect for Methodists mm-hmm. of having sort of a, a hierarchical polity. Mm-hmm. Um, and England became relatively democratic, partially through the influence of nonconformists, but it also had an Anglican Episcopal polity. Um, In terms of historically, the people who are most crucial in developing a lot of democratic theory were Calvinists or former Calvinists. Mm -hmm. So almost all of the major democratic theorists that we think of as being sort of secular enlightenment came from Calvinist families or Calvinists, Calvinist educations, almost all of them. Um, And were influenced by it. And a lot of the things that they do, they're just secularizing things that Calvinist theologians had already said, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you can show that. yeah.
6: I have a question about. Oh, sorry.
2: Wait, you were first, and then you, and then you.
1: I was just wondering, really quick, if you anticipate pushback in other articles being written to okay. positively critique. But are there certain areas you expect them to count on the first to try and? Right. Yeah. And are you worried about it, or how are you
2: going no. to? Respond I'm not worried about this? it. I've, I've, I've. I've done so much work on this. The I citation
7: count will go, go up. What
1: can
2: they critique if it's bulletproof? What yeah. can they even
3: write a
2: critique on? Well, I don't know if it's bulletproof, but it's, it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I've spent yeah. a dozen years on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, almost. Yeah. Uh, One critique that I know someone's trying to publish on right now is basically saying that Pentecostals don't have the same effect um, It's not Protestantism per se, it's particular types of mainline Protestantism, and I'm like, no, okay, Pentecostals may not have the same focus on education uh, I don't know it's an empirical question. I don't think they do, but you know th- that's that's not counteracting this argument, and when these people are doing these things, they were not mainline so Maybe they were Presbyterian and Methodist and other things like that, but these were pretty radical people at the time, religiously. Yeah. Now, so we can't take that the, the Presby- Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, um, or the United Methodist Church now is mainline, mm-hmm. and say, oh, that's just the mainline church. It's not really activist religion, because yeah. when I'm talking You're about them in the 19th yeah. century, these people were religious fanatics, considered so.
6: Um,
2: so... That's one critique that I know I already have. Yeah. Um,
6: if you look at, uh, if you look at the, the you were talking a little bit about the secularization or the lack of being uh, of, of the radicalization of the secular thought that comes after the the, the Protestants would uh, bring about women literacy and, and democracy and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, with Malcolm X and. After, after Martin Luther King, okay, right? right huh? um, does that apply to uh, within, within? I, I don't know if this is outside of your uh, expertise or not, but does that apply as well within the churches uh, that have become mainline that were not so mm-hmm. in Europe and the United States mm-hmm. uh, compared to those same denomination churches? Like, for example, a Nigerian Methodist church mm-hmm. is not of Massachusetts Methodist church. Right, right. They are very different animals, even uh-huh. though they have the same denomination. doctrine, denomination. Uh, it, it has the emphasis switched uh, or, or changed in, in any way within those churches? Does that make any sense at all? It, yeah, it, it has. Well, I mean,
2: it's complex. In, in the 1920s and 30s, you have the fundamentalist-modernist split um, over a lot of issues. Um, but the denominations that we now call mainline, uh, a lot of the missionaries and a lot of the sort of seminary professors, et cetera, started to focus more on education and social action and other things like that. And conservatives respond reacted to that somewhat and focused more on evangelism. Now, they still did some of this kind of work. Um, but in the 50s and 60s, the mainline churches sort of like give up on missions, a lot of them, they stopped doing it. They become embarrassed by it. Um, And they still get involved some in sort of financing um, revolutionary movements in places like Zimbabwe and stuff like that. Um, Theological conservatives back off a bit on that. Now you're starting to get sort of, particularly since Luzon in the 1970s, um, you're getting a re-emphasis on sort of, quote-unquote, holistic gospel within uh, uh, more theologically conservative denominations mm-hmm. and missions. They're one; the ones that are still doing missions. Mainlines mostly are not, except for evangelical branches within them. Um, but you're getting much more emphasis on sort of social action linked with missions now. Yeah, when You're not having that sort of tension between mm-hmm. symbolic boundary mm-hmm. on that issue. That was, that
6: was my question about, about, okay, well, what I see is I see, for example, today, uh, the, I mean, I use Methodist, So, so, or or I'm Presbyterian, so I can use the PCUSA. It's not as involved overseas as, say, maybe the OPC or the PCA. They're they're more involved in secular organizations.
2: Right. But what what you have within the mainline, um, the mainline denominations, they've become embarrassed by missions, and they found a lot of the sort of secular aid organizations and international organizations that now we think of as being secular. That's what happens to mainline missions okay it's the root of those organizations and that's where the people who used to go into missions went into okay, there. okay that's what happens yeah. oh sorry Thank you, you were there and then you <laughs> um, I kind of have two questions I don't
5: know this is cheating um, mm-hmm. the economists that you mentioned at places like MIT and Harvard mm-hmm. and this might be kind of a dumb question but the, what they're studying, I mean, are they basically finding that is it related to like where there's a spread of Protestantism? they a having the a charmer dance going on
0: here.
5: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's in India. Cult. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, the the economists that you mentioned are uh, these are people that are not. <laughs> they're not religious. They're not religious, and I guess this is happening recently. Yes. Uh-huh. Are they basically finding that where there's more? Where there's more Protestant, there's more economic
2: development, there's more education, there's more literacy, there's more uh, democracy, there's more lots of things. Um, so they're mostly doing subnational analyses. Um, so I did all this stuff and doing the, the, finding the mission stations, which I haven't really used because I've been doing the cross national analyses. Well, they found those sources from my work and are re-entering the data because I wouldn't share it with them without a co-author agreement basically, because I put in all this work, Um, and they're looking at Africa, for example, which they view as more closer to like a blank slate before Europeans come, but you can at least argue that it's comparable in terms of economic development, education, health, etc. Okay. And so they're looking at mission stations um, and other things and looking at economic development, which there's a positive relationship, education there's a positive relationship, particularly for women, Um, uh, you know, language retention. Things like that. So, indigenous language retention. Uh, issues like that. And there's also people who are doing it in China. Um, and also, show where there's more Protestant missions, there's more economic development um, over time. Um, uh, where else are people doing it? Oh, someone did it in, in India in terms of education in India. Um, but it's mostly people working in Africa.
5: Okay, but I mean essentially the bottom line is they're finding that there's a It's consistent
2: with the the work that I've done. Okay. And then there's one person at Harvard who compared Guatemala and Korea, (laughs) and so she's arguing that like the Pentecostals in Guatemala aren't doing these things, and so my theory doesn't work because it doesn't apply to conservative Protestants, just to mainline Protestants. But I'm like, okay, the mainline Protestants in Korea, are pretty evangelical <laughs> <laughs> in the time periods we're talking about. Um, and the, the, there's a lot of restrictions in Guatemala on what the Protestants can do and they're working, they're working with pre-literate Mayan and, and so they're basically doing primary education. They're not... So she's defining mass education as like university education, which they're not doing. Which I'm not defining as mass education. I'm defining mass literacy and, and and also the Catholic Church has changed over time, so now she's saying, oh, like the, the you know Catholics are doing all this stuff, and I'm like, yeah, now they are, in the 20th century, yeah. after 1965. Yeah. But show me where they were doing this before 1965 in places where they were not competing with Protestants. They weren't. But anyways, those, those mm-hmm. it, it starts to get in these little petty things, which right. at some point you just like uh, it's just like a nuisance. I don't care. But <coughs> those
5: are the critiques. Okay, and then real quick, th- one thing that we, one thing that I just thought about as you were speaking was, we know that the Mormon church is very uh, missional, missional mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's to the point where I think if you're a male, you have to, yeah. Go yeah. Yes. does your data include them? or are they No, and I don't think they have the same effect,
2: because they don't do, they don't do education, they don't do this kind of stuff. Do they just do door-to-door? Door di- yeah, it's two, year, two years direct evangelism. Okay, because I mean
5: that's I know that that's what it is in the states because I've had that's that, what in it is life. All right.
7: that didn't start till the 19th century anyway, or at least the Mormon Church itself. Right,
5: right, and and international
2: missions by the Mormon Church doesn't really start till the 20th century.
5: But even like internationally, their 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 missional approach is kind of like it is in the states where it's direct right. door to door. It's to direct door to door. So they become
2: great language experts th- because they use language all the time. There's lots of them in the CIA and in international business. and Running for president. Well, <laughs> but um, No, they get really good at language. I don't think they have the same effect on terms of transforming uh, the education. Okay, i was just curious. Can I get the name of the journalist that's coming out in May? The American Political Science Review. American Social Science American Political, Political Science, Science Review. Science Review.
7: Yeah. This is a, maybe a, this is a little unrelated, but uh, kind of a similar thing, perhaps. And that's that there is a, like a, a TV special and a book, a popular book called Guns and Guns, Germs and Steel yeah, by Jarrett uh-huh. Diamond. Uh-huh. And he he was assert. My understanding is that he was asserting that there were certain factors uh, that caused the West to be supposedly more successful, uh, depending on how you. De- you know, define success, but more advanced, technologically advanced and so forth. And that it had nothing to do with like the Judeo-Christian culture, that it really had to do with chance variables such as the climate, which would be good for growing uh, grains, which could be stored, which would give people time to sit around and invent things, and these, this and that and the other thing. And it seems like he ignores the fact, for example, that China had a grain that you could store—it had rice—and for a while it was relatively advanced compared to the West. It even had gun—it even had uh, gunpowder—and yet, you know, at a certain point, the West pulled far ahead technologically
0: <laughs> beyond the the Chinese. So,
7: would this be the type of example of somebody kind of turning a blind eye to obvious? Inconsistencies with their theses, or right.
2: Well, I mean, he, it's, it's a general, it's a general argument which has some, I think, truth in it, but he just overplays it. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. And if I remember correctly, he's a biologist. He's not a historian or a yeah. social scientist. But environmental history isn't really. I mean, there's, that's the thing,
1: though. Right. Just just like a right.
2: And I, I think climate matters. I can for it. I think having an east-west continent probably matters. Um, Lots of things matter, but certainly within looking at the patterns of change within Europe, you have radical change over time, which is not based on climate, or germs, or whatever. And then also where missionaries go, um, why are Protestants and Catholics having different Mm effects? Germs don't influence one and not the other. Okay? For example... And they're not just going to east west climb, uh, continents. Right. You know, they're going to Africa, they're going to Latin America. If we look at Africa and where Protestant missionaries went, it's better. On average. Mm-hmm. On a micro level. Like, and also when you do invisible lines that no longer exist. Okay? Borders? If you look at borders between countries, missionaries are allowed here, they're not allowed there.
6: Nigeria. Or borders within
2: countries. Nigeria. Northern, northern Nigeria, southern Nigeria. There was mm-hmm.
6: just in the news just this last week with, uh, I think, the northern seven provinces in Nigeria where there's Muslim, I forget the name of the Muslim Brotherhood, something or other, mm-hmm. that's going around and basically killing entire villages. Yeah, in yeah. The, and the Boko Haram. And yeah, yeah, that's it. And, and then the southern provinces are trying to fight this, but they have. Very little, very little power because that was. And when, when you said uh, early on in your talk about the dividing line between mm-hmm. that, that, I mean, I just read it on BBC maybe 10-15 days ago, not long right. ago, and, and I mean that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. Why? Like you can see, they showed a, uh, a map on BBC. It was like um, the the green was areas that are Christian mm-hmm. now, and the orange are areas that are Muslim now. And you right. look at all the areas that are Having these problems, they're all useless, Every yeah. single one of them. Yeah. And
2: non Christian. Right. At independence, there was one person who had a university degree from northern Nigeria, and he was a Christian. Wow. There was tons of them from southern Nigeria. Which yeah. Reason? Yeah. Okay.
6: They no. also talked about. And, all and that's
2: people. not gun terms, terms and seal. That's not.
6: The climate. That's not
2: the. And they also show. You can draw a line. Yeah, they show. You the can the look at either side.
6: They show the pictures of the cities in southern Nigeria, you know, basically with raised highways and. Right. You know, I mean, the cities have their problems, but they're hmm. modern, you know, second world cities, not third world cities, mm-hmm. you know. And then you look at the, and then they show pictures of the of northern mm-hmm. Nigeria cities, and they were dumps. Mm-hmm. They were awful.
0: Yeah. So
1: have one more question, and then maybe we'll wrap it up. <laughs> okay. <yeah>. <laughs> 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 no, 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 I mean... I,
3: I have <laughs> and I have, I have two. Oh,
2: oh. Okay. She got it
3: over me. Yeah, okay. Okay, now the, uh, the first is... Um, uh, any comments with respect to... Uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, mm-hmm. the, his conversion to Christianity, and oh. also part of this... First question is um, Your perspective on the groundwork laid by Christian missionaries in China and mm-hmm. how that has affected their uh, uh, social evolution?
2: Okay. Um, uh, what's unusual about both Sun Yat sen and eventually Zhang Kai shek becoming Protestants, and they're both of their wives being Protestants? Um, is how few Protestants there were in the country at the time. Um, so, Sun Yat-sen, who was the first pers- person who read the Nationalist Revolution um, that kicked out the Empire, um, was a Protestant mission-trained doctor. Um, a large proportion of his cabinet were originally Protestant or heavily influenced by them, um, but they needed; ch- they didn't have their military, so they relied on a man named Yun Shikai, who was a warlord, who then tried to become the new emperor and kicked out most of the Christians in his cabin. Um, but you had this close relationship between early nationalists and particularly the YMCA. Um, and they learned a lot of their organizational techniques from the YMCA. All then you start getting infiltration of, of uh, in the, in the Russian, uh, the Soviet um, spot. Um, but even the early communist leaders who organized the communist party went to the YMCA and they copied some of their techniques and they wanted to instill the kind of sort of religious devotion in their followers because there's like these Protestants can get these educated people to go and work with poor people in the countryside. We need to be able to do that. We need to develop that kind of spirit. So you see in Chinese Communism, the Little Red Book and these like equivalent of Bible studies, studying Marxist texts and getting discussing and having self-confession and all this kind of stuff. Okay, where that comes from? Christianity. Hmm. Directly. They write about it in their journals. Huh. Seriously, there's a there's a guy at Yale who's writing about that right now. His mm-hmm. dissertation. It's a good. It's a great dissertation. Um, uh, so the nationalists have this influence, but they also have a lot of influence by the by the, com- the Soviets, um, the communists. Um, kai Shek goes up. His wife is from a quote unquote Christian Protestant family, although it's really corrupt. So it's really complex. My grandparents knew her. They think she was a real Christian, but her family, her father, I don't know. He was pretty Um, corrupt. Chiang Kai-shek, really complex guy. Later in life, he converts to Protestantism. But uh, when he goes to Taiwan, for example, he kills a whole bunch of people in order to establish power. He's he's really a complex guy. I I think that his conversion was partially over politics because he wants U.S. support. But at a minimum... It's quite unusual that you'd have this many Protestants at the leadership of China when there's so few Protestants in China. Okay? They at least got organizational skills and other things like that from these Protestant organizations. Um, now, who knows what would have happened in China if the Communists had not taken over. And it was no done deal. At, at the end of World War II, almost no one thought the Communists would come to power. Um, I can explain that how that happened, but it's not an inevitable process. It's hugely influenced by Russia coming in and taking over the northern part of China when... Japan suddenly collapses, and giving all the Manchuko military and all the material to the communists, allowing the communists to move up to the north where they have a direct supply route from from Russia, the U.S. originally trying to create peace, and so forcing the nationalists not to attack the communists, which then allowed them to build up strength, all kinds of stuff. It is not like an inevitable process. Um, And then the next question was about...
3: Um, God has opened amazing doors to you. In your experiences in different countries mm-hmm. in your life. Yeah. Um, is there any country in particular uh, that has your heart?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, maybe China. Um, I have very many good friends. I taught English there at a university and uh, had some of the closest friends of my life um, there. Um, and then a lot of people have kept in contact with me. A number of my students are in the states. Mm-hmm. A couple are in Houston. So that's probably it.
5: Okay I'm going to cheat too real quick. Can you tell us <laughs> why you chose uh, this Singapore between
2: Calvin? <laughs> Uh, Because I can continue to do my research. Um, Well, Calvin, I actually never got a formal offer. I got an informal one, and then they got intimidated by National University of Singapore. (laughs) But basically, um, Calvin, I would have to teach seven courses a year. At National University of Singapore, I'd have to teach three. Um, Calvin, I would get half the salary that I get at National University of Singapore. Okay. So in other words, the one in Singapore is more of a tier one. Yeah, it's more of a research university. I get the first semester off. They're giving me close to a hundred thousand dollars startup grant money. Um, okay. So at the my salary. I mean, they're doing a lot. They're giving me a good offer. Did you want to finish your presentation or you Oh
1: yeah, do it? yeah, please. Oh. because <laughs> uh, you prepared it if you want to. There's <laughs> yeah.
5: not very much left. <laughs> okay, okay. I don't. Yeah. I uh, mean. <laughs> oh, I. Yes, we just please. gotta okay, have more tables. No, no,
2: no, no no more table! No, no more table. Um, Anyways, Uh, where's I don't even know where the seat is because I got off track. Um, Oh, it's one of these. But basically, my conclusion is you can flip. Um, Christianity has profoundly shaped much of what we consider modernity and that religious, religious incentives are crucial to understand the process. So, for example, that spread of printing and newspapers, we can't understand without understanding religious motivation. Um, and pr- religious competition was crucial to shifting it to other groups and changing the incentives to elites, um, both in terms of organization between bridging between classes religiously, but also um, you can monopolize uh, other things like education, stuff, cetera, but you can't monopolize souls and when uh, people who are being abused in a given system um, are more likely to convert, um, which then forces the dominant religious group to start to send resources to those um, poor people um, or minority people in order to prevent them from becoming Protestant, which then has long-term effect on class pressure. Also, um, we can see from examples like Jews who were very highly educated from the second century on, um, they were very economically successful, nobody copied them. It wasn't until education was used to try and convert people that it forced people to change. Mm-hmm. Um, so the conversion aspect is crucial in terms of a lot of these developments. Uh, next slide. Um, a lot of people talk about material causes for things like democracy and economic development and other things like that. Um, I argue that there are also cultural um, uh, uh, causes. A lot of people view things like class structure, whatever that is, um, and other things like that is hard, and things like religion and culture as soft. So if you ever say a cultural cause, they go, oh, it's really caused by something else. But if you say class structure or something that they consider hard, they don't say, oh, it's really caused by religion. But I can show that things like class structure and economic development and spread of education, et cetera, are directly shaped by cultural factors like religion. Um, So it works more like yin and yang. Each shapes each other. I don't want to deny that economic factors and other factors shape religion, maybe. Um, But it works both ways. in the social sciences, there's a famous guy called Max Weber. Um, he talks about religion, particularly Protestantism and, and, and modernity. Um, perhaps some of his arguments are wrong. I don't believe some of them. Um, but I think his intuition is right. I think that Protestantism, and particularly activist Protestantism, has profoundly shaped um, the modern world. Thank you. questions I got for the table. <laughs> <laughs>